For the week of Thursday, March 21st, 2019, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, in the wake of the mass killing of 50 Muslim worshipers in New Zealand, a consortium of interfaith leaders and elected officials gathered at the Muslim Association of Puget Sound in Redmond for an evening of grief, solidarity, and hope. We're joined by the executive director of the American Muslim Empowerment Network, Anila Afzali, to talk about how we can combat the scourge of global hate and Islamophobia. Then, for the second year running, the Crosscut Festival returns to Seattle. We talk with the director of the festival, Jake Newman, about the over 75 top-named guests, including Valerie Jarrett, Macklemore, Janet Napolitano, and many others who will converge on Seattle University on May 3rd and 4th. And then we will wrap things up with our weekly calls to action with research team leader Stephen Wilhelm. That's all ahead, so stay with us. In response to last week's mass shooting at a mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand, that killed 50 worshippers, the Muslim Association of Puget Sound, or MAPS, held a vigil and a teach-in on Monday. The event drew numerous elected officials from Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin to Attorney General Bob Ferguson, Lieutenant Governor Cyrus Habib, and sitting members of Congress, including Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal and others. Nearly 50 faith leaders were also in attendance and spoke to the shared sense of grief and the need to stand in solidarity with our Muslim community, but also to express a collective resolve to fight back against hate and Islamophobia. Fifteen Muslim community groups co-sponsored the event, and one of the main organizers was our friend Anila Afzali, who also conducted a teaching about Islamophobia, and we have invited her on to talk about the evening and also to discuss some of what she taught on Monday. Anila is the executive director of the American Muslim Empowerment Network at MAPS, and we are always so happy to talk with her, although uh, we do wish that it could be under better circumstances. Anila, hello. Hello, Stefan, and well, uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, of course. Uh, this is such a vital topic and a, and a vital time to discuss it. And I, I will just, before we begin, I just want to ask how you and members, other members of the Islamic community here in Puget Sound are processing what's happened. Um, Monday's event, I think, offered a great deal of uplift and hope and fellow feeling, but I, I can imagine that there's still just a, a very profound sense of shock. Absolutely. It is a roller coaster of emotions. Uh, Thursday night, we just were shocked. We were traumatized. There was a sense of strong tragedy, uh, solidarity as well. But it was the it was just I couldn't believe it. I felt like it was a gut punch to me. It was actually a realization of one of my own worst fears, even here locally, when I'm in a place of worship in prostration in worship, where you should find comfort and solace and peace uh, that you could potentially be gunned down that way. So the community was alarmed. And this is this is true for the global Muslim community, because what happened in New Zealand was not just over there. It directly impacted people here locally and across the globe. And our first priority was, of course, security for our own Friday congregational prayers because the New Zealand killer, uh, you know, did his actions, his horrific actions uh, during the Friday congregational prayer when there's the most mm. people in the mosque. 
So yeah. it was heartbreaking. Um, but I say roller coaster because what we had on Monday and even leading up to Monday, all the outpouring of community support and solidarity and love and kindness and standing together, I mean, that has been uplifting. That is what gives me and so many others strength and, and the resolve to continue to move forward to fight Islamophobia and hate and racism and stand united against these ugly things that really destroy all of us and hurt all of us. So we feel uplifted but also uh, obviously still in trauma and, and uh, feeling tragedy. Yeah, uh, I mean, obviously, it, you know, and it speaks to the fact that we're in a, a new era now where tragically people don't feel safe in houses of worship. Um, we were reminded on Monday that each faith has now been the victim of a mass shooting. Reverend Dr. Kelly J. Brown talked about the church shooting in Charleston. Uh, Rabbi David Basio referenced Pittsburgh and uh, while it's, of course, heartbreaking that we need to keep coming together around these shootings, I agree that it's so inspiring to see the power of community at work in this way, to see people of so many faiths, uh, leaders from the Christian and Jewish communities coming together in solidarity. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's been other communities, too, the Sikh community, Hindu community, Buddhist community. They've all faced attacks, even here locally. Uh, and that was beautiful to see people from all faith backgrounds and no faith backgrounds come together in solidarity and take this united stand and, and really to, uh, provide a moral voice as well against the sins of Islamophobia, uh, racism uh, and hate generally. Yeah. And your teaching about Islamophobia touched on so much of that. And you know, I was just struck by how much we in America just get wrong about Islam, starting with the fact that Muslims have been a part of this country since before it was founded, which is something that not a lot of people are aware of. Can you talk about exactly. that a little bit? Yeah, that surprises a lot of people because oftentimes Muslims are portrayed as their other eyes and seen as foreign when the reality is that Islam and Muslims have been part of our country's shores since before we even were an independent nation. Muslims first came over as explorers uh, of our lands, and then they were brought over as part of the slave trade, where there are estimates of up to 30 percent of those who human beings enslaved from Africa being Muslim. Wow. And we have historical records on this. We have historical records on Muslims uh, fighting in the Revolutionary War for our country's independence, in the Civil War, World War One, World War Two, and every other uh, uh, every other one since. We have things like uh, Thomas Jefferson having a copy of the Quran himself, and he and the other founding fathers even explicitly recognizing uh, Muslims when defining the parameters of religious freedom in our country and equal protection. They called them Mahometans at the time. We have things like the U.S. Supreme Court honoring and recognizing Prophet Muhammad in 1935 as one of the greatest lawgivers in human history, one of the 18 greatest lawgivers. These are the kinds of history that a lot of people don't know nothing about, and they're oftentimes shocked to hear it, surprised to hear it. But it is because of the narrative, the demonization of Muslims and Islam in our country that a lot of people don't know about this. So that was part of what we wanted to do with the event on Monday evening is include a teaching to help shatter some of these uh, stereotypes and misinformation about Islam and Muslims, because understanding is critical uh, to combat Islamophobia. And part of the, the whole teaching's purpose was to make sure that we go beyond just thoughts and prayers and solidarity and really move that solidarity toward action at a time when we're doing the events with thoughts and prayers far too often. Yeah. And, and it's not it's not enough. 
it's definitely not enough. They're important. You know, I, I believe in thoughts and prayers. And I, I, as a person of faith, I know how important prayer in particular is. And obviously, the solidarity of the community is, is also vital. But at the same time, it is not enough when these instances of hate continue happening every single day, pretty much, against various communities. Uh, so we really wanted to move and mobilize people to action. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we do have uh, 12 action items that you recommend to discuss in just a bit. But, you know, just following on your thread about Muslims in America, if you flash forward to today, there are more misperceptions. So Muslims are about 1% of the population. And you point to data that shows that statistically, they are more likely to be productive members of our society. They are less likely to have committed violent crimes. And also, they have higher levels of educational attainment, particularly among women. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. You know, they uh, some of the highest entrepreneurship rates, for instance, are among the Muslim community. Uh, American Muslim women also don't have a wage gap between American Muslim women and American Muslim men, which is actually very unique for a religious community. Uh, and that's also, unique for any community in the United <laughs> that's States. True too. That is true, too. And and also Muslims are some of the staunchest uh, believers in, that violence against civilians and, and under any circumstances is wrong. Polls show that Muslims uh, have the highest you know, opposition to any kind of violence against civilians. But all of that reality, you know, th- those kinds of facts and stats and data, they simply do not change hearts and minds. And a lot of people just don't even know about that. Well, that speaks to how Islam is represented in our media, right? I mean, the coverage that we see is almost always negative, even in places that you wouldn't expect. I mean, you talk about a very eye-opening study that revealed how even the New York Times reports negatively on Islam. Can you share that statistic? Sure. So there was a study of the New York Times over the course of 25 years, and that study found that the New York Times portrayed Islam and Muslims worse than cancer and cocaine even. Hmm. And and that's that's shocking to folks, but it, it gives you a sense of how bad things are. Islam is the most often re- mentioned religion in mainstream media, and studies show that that, uh, that uh, coverage is often very negative and even defamatory. 80% or more of the coverage of Muslims and Islam is negative, according to Media Tenor, a study by Media Tenor. Uh, we also see the same thing in, in, in the entertainment industry. The portrayal of Muslims in Hollywood is overwhelmingly negative. Yeah. And all of this contributes to the larger context and culture that allows for Islamophobia to move forward and allows for these kinds of horrific atrocities and massacres to occur. And what I tell people is, you know, it it isn't just the person pulling the trigger or the person pulling somebody's hijab off their heads or, you know, attacking somebody or vandalizing a mosque. It isn't just those individuals who are uh, involved in Islamophobia. Islamophobia really has to be understood as a larger system and this institutionalized uh, uh, process that affects every aspect and every sector of society. Yeah, you say there's like a $205 million industry that drives this. Exactly. There is a a small core network of anti-Muslim hate groups that spread uh, misinformation, lies, conspiracy theories about Islam and Muslims. And it's a propaganda tool and a dehumanization machinery. And they have a lot of money. They use, you know, over they spend over 30 million dollars every year to promote this kind of anti-Muslim narrative in our country. And that drives a lot of what people see, believe and understand a lot of the content 
content that they find when they, you know, try to do research on the internet about various issues or questions they may have. It's what uh, drives people to have this very negative view and even dehumanized view of their Muslim neighbors. And we know that the process of dehumanization ultimately leads to violence, as we are seeing. So it is a much larger system driven by an anti-Muslim industry of, of hate groups. And as I tell people all the time, it is really important for us to learn about Islam and Muslims from actual Muslims, not from these hate groups and the narrative that they drive. And that gets into some of the action steps that, that we'll talk about uh, in just a moment, uh, one of which or a few of which actually focus on the aspect of humanization. But, you know, the flip side of all of this is the way that white males are treated in the media. Um, and as we know, the shooter in New Zealand was white. This was also the case, of course, with the shooter in Pittsburgh, the shooter in Charleston. I mean, the vast majority of mass shooters in modern history have been white males. Uh, talk a little bit about the disparity in the way that the media treats these shooters. Absolutely. The media double standards is very visible. And I actually think this uh, New Zealand massacre has highlighted for a lot of folks the media's double standards, which they were maybe not attuned to before. But the reality is that whether or not an incident is even covered to begin with is is biased. Uh, studies show that when Muslims are uh, engaged in any kind of violence, they get far more media attention. In fact, according to the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, they issued a report last year that confirmed this, that confirmed that Muslims who were involved in uh, you know, violent plots uh, received 770 percent more media attention than similar plots by non-Muslims. We see this in how the media talks about the individuals involved. Uh, oftentimes when it is uh, white uh, men in particular, it happens to be white men in particular, uh, that the media uh, seems to try to de- uh, humanize them rather than de- dehumanize them, where the reverse is true if, if the killer is a, 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 if a criminal is, is Muslim. We see this just even with a New Zealand uh, killer there, where he was described in some media headlines as an angelic boy who had mm. turned into a raging killer, or, you know, his, his background and his history was very humanized, where he had something, I think it was like a parent who was battling cancer, and he was just a kid from, from Grafton, and, you know, like this kind of humanizing content, uh, curly-haired, and, and uh, lo- they're often described as lone wolves who are mentally disturbed right. rather than race being attributed or the religion coming in and the associated group blame being applied. So that's sort of part of what we're seeing. And the consequences of that is that people have a a wrong view about what the actual source of threat is in our country. You know, in our country, study after study has shown that the biggest source of security threat uh, comes from the far right, uh, you know, white nationalists, uh, and they tend to be white men. Uh, According to statistically, the highest number tend to be white men. But that's not who people fear as a group. And uh, we also see the bias in the legal system, Uh, the the sentences for Muslims versus non-Muslims. There's a disparity there. Uh, Muslims tend to get four times longer sentences, according to the study from the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. And we also see another unique thing, which is the Justice Department uh, and whether or not they publicize uh, certain incidents. So when they foil a plot, for instance, like when the FBI foils a plot, uh, they, they have the choice of whether or not to issue a press release or hold a press conference and share that information with media. And if they don't do it, media oftentimes does not hear 
hear about or cover a lot of these kinds of instances. And we saw this most visibly with the um, with the U.S. Coast Guard, the white nationalists who had a violent plot that court documents that the Justice Department in court documents described as uh, a, something that was unparalleled in our nation in terms of the kind of damage that that violent plot could have uh, achieved. But unfortunately, ju the Justice Department, because it was a white nationalist involved, did not at all even issue a press release or hold a press conference about that U.S. Coast Guard. Right. And the only reason that media covered it and that we all heard about it is because an individual happened to be uh, going through the court filings and saw what the Justice Department themselves even said about this individual and this horrifically wide-scale uh, plot that he had for violence. And that was posted on social media by him. And that's where media picked it up because the Department was silent about it outside of their court documents. And so accordingly, you know, what you're pointing out here is that we're actually compromising our own security by over-focusing on the Muslim community. And you have some interesting statistics there. That's exactly true. There was a study done uh, in tw uh, 2017 by the Investigative Fund, and they found that the past, and they analyzed the past nine years and found that we really are compromising our security when we focus so much on Islam or Muslims instead of the actual source of threat in our country. And we saw vivid examples of this with what happened in the Parkland shooting uh, massacre on Valentine's Day, mm -hmm. where law enforcement had received multiple reports of that individual but did not actually take action until it was too late. If that had been a Muslim, they likely would have taken action. So we actually compromise the security in our own country for all of us with this false narrative and Islamophobia that is based on race or religion rather than uh, evidence-based investigations, which are more effective at keeping all of us you know, more safe and secure. And it's, it's so pervasive that uh, this is something else you point out, uh, and I think this is pretty evident. We give up our civil liberties for this yes. false sense of security. Um, we did it with the Patriot Act after 9-11, um, which authorized surveillance on civilians. Uh, I'm reminded of the Ben Franklin quote, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. So well, <laughs> that's Absolutely appropriate. Well, so let's talk about what we can do. So as we know, we, we have a person in the White House who has absolutely legitimized bigotry and Islamophobia and hate on a global scale. So there, unfortunately, is a lot to do. And you lay out 12 action items for combating Islamophobia. The first is to name the problem of Islamophobia, which you've done here, and to equate it with other forms of hate like anti-Semitism and racism generally. Next, you say that we should learn about the Islamophobia network that is the industry devoted to propagating Islamophobia that we discussed earlier. And there is a link for people to check out at indivisiblepodcast.org. And then you talk about working with congressional representatives. So Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal has introduced legislation in Congress to condemn Islamophobia. You say that we can also push to repeal the Muslim travel ban. So talk about the specific action there. Sure. So the Muslim ban was actually one of the uh horrible decision from the U.S. Supreme Court that allowed for religious discrimination uh, to be legalized in our country, even though everybody heard uh, Donald Trump on the campaign trail. He was very clear about his intentions uh, to basically 
ban Muslims. It was yeah. very clear what his intentions were, and he's put that into policy. And unfortunately, it's been now approved at the highest level of, of legal institution in our country. I personally believe that will be or that is a stain on our country, and we will regret that decision uh, in the future, uh, and we'll be judged by history for that decision. But right now, because the Supreme Court has spoken, the ball is in the court of Congress. Congress has the power and ability to change that and, and remove the religious discrimination that the Muslim ban allows for and the narrative that it also promotes, which contributes exactly to the Islamophobia culture that results yep. in dehumanization and, and violence even. So this is, and not, not to say anything about the huge impact that it has on individual families who are separated from their loved ones, people who are prevented from medical attention, People, you know, our institutions of learning, our businesses here locally are impacted all by the Muslim ban. But putting all that stuff aside, we have the opportunity now to urge our members of Congress to repeal the Muslim ban. There's a petition that they can sign encouraging uh, members of Congress to repeal the ban. And then also there are specific people that we can all reach out to our elected officials and ask that they uh, support, that they co-sponsor the current bills that are in both the House and the Senate to repeal the ban and also new legislation that will be coming out that prevents the president from engaging in this kind of religious discrimination and defunds the, the ability to engage in this kind of religious discrimination. So I know that uh, Congresswoman Jayapal has been a co-sponsor of the bill in the House, as has Adam Smith. Uh, we need to get our other representatives to also sign on. Uh, and then in the Senate, we have Senator Murray, who is a co-sponsor uh, and unfortunately, uh, Senator Cantwell has not signed on as a co-sponsor. There's no reason for that. She should be signing on and making sure that she does what she can to uh, to repeal this religiously discriminatory ban. Yeah, there are a couple of solid calls to action there. Um, and, you know, in terms of the state legislative level, there are also a couple of bills in Olympia that we can support. What are those? So we have a hate crimes bill. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people don't even know this, that Washington is one of the states with the highest levels of hate crimes. Uh, in 2017, we saw an increase of 17% uh, in hate crimes across the nation. But in Washington, we had a 42% increase. Uh, uh, wow. I, I had no idea. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Washington is second only to California in terms of the, the numbers of hate crimes uh, in our state. Uh, and this is something that's surprising to a lot of folks. Uh, so we have this coalition that came together uh, to propose uh, uh, revisions or changes to our current hate crimes uh, legislation that does not even call it by the real name, does not even say hate crimes. It's, it's malicious harassment. And we want to call it by the real name. We want to identify additional factors that prosecutors can use uh, when looking at certain instances uh, where bias is clearly involved as a motive for attacking various communities. And this is about hate crimes against uh, multiple marginalized community members, not just uh, certainly not just Muslims. It's against our Jewish siblings, our black siblings, our LGBTQ siblings. Uh, different communities are facing this problem. And this is a way to address that and make sure that we strengthen our hate crimes legislation in Washington state to help prevent and stop being a state with the second highest level of hate crimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's alarming that we're anywhere near the top of that list. Um, and then in conjunction with that, there's also something called the Washington State Religious Accommodations Bill. 
Correct. So that bill would uh, allow for a policy, a standardized policy for colleges and universities to have to provide religious accommodation to individuals of any minority religious background uh, so that we don't have this ad hoc uh, current system where certain teachers allow for accommodation, others don't, there's no sort of uh, due process involved, there's no uh, equal equality in sort of who gets accommodation, who doesn't. So this is a way to help ensure that members of minority uh, faith backgrounds, whether they're Muslim, Jewish, Sikh, Hindu, you know, whatever they may be, that they also get accommodation. And it's a way to help honor and respect the religious traditions and backgrounds of all Washingtonians. Uh, and not just the, uh, the majority religion. Well, it sounds like a tremendous piece of legislation and absolutely worth supporting. And then you also include a petition that we can sign to change Islamophobic city names. What can you tell us about that? Yes. Unfortunately, there are about 22 city names across the globe. Uh, I believe most of them are in Mexico uh, that have the name Matamoros, which means kill Muslims, essentially. Mm. Uh, and it's a horrible, violent uh, city name or name of, to use at all. Uh, and the fact that it is happening, that we are actually seeing the attacks and, and killing of Muslims across the world, uh, it's something that we should now look at and make sure we change these kinds of names. In fact, in Spain, there was a city that, or a town that had the name, uh, or that had killed Jews in its name, and that's that town was able to change their name, and we think that was great that they did yeah. uh, to make sure they're not promoting violence. And we think the same thing should happen with the cities that that promote violence against Muslims. So this is an easy way. It's a petition that people can sign, uh, expressing their support for uh, letters to be sent to all the heads of state or the uh, city officials in in these various towns to make sure. We ask and, and show our support for changing those names to something that is not violent or Islamophobic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely necessary. Uh, another action item is to donate to the victims in New Zealand. And we will have a link for people at IndivisiblePodcast.org. And then you've, you touched on this earlier. Uh, you say that we have the responsibility to tell a different narrative about Islam um, in person, on social media. And you say that we should tell humanizing stories. So just kind of expand on what you mean by that. Sure. So as I was talking about earlier, what's happening in our country is there's this whole dehumanization machinery at work and this uh, very strong anti-Muslim narrative that is being promoted in all sectors of society uh, led by these anti-Muslim hate groups. So we have the opportunity to tell a different narrative, not one of fear and divisiveness and hate and violence, but rather one of love and solidarity and unity and faith and, you know, all the values that protect us all, the values that we all uphold, whether it's religious freedom, diversity, unity. These are the, the opportunity we have to, to tell and promote that narrative, and especially to use mainstream media, because that has reached that is far greater than uh, than any other way that we could reach uh, people. So we have the ability to use mainstream media through letters to the editor, through op-eds, to tell personalizing, humanizing stories about the, the Muslims that folks know, you know, talk about it. And, and I tell people all the time, you don't need to debate theology. You don't need to 
you know, explain verses or provide the context for certain verses, that you don't need to know the facts or stats or the data that I've shared about violence or, you know, some of these other issues that we've discussed, Stefan. All you got to do is share humanizing stories because those actually have the strongest ability to change hearts and minds. And we don't have enough of those kinds of humanizing stories in the face of this multi-million dollar industry that is promoting the dehumanization of Muslims. So that's what people can do is use their platform, whatever it may be, whether it's social media, whether it's newsletters of their church, their office or, or synagogue or anything else, and then use uh, mainstream media. That's an incredible power that every single individual has. Uh, and I even say uh, responsibility uh, with, with that privilege that we all have to really affect change in our country and hopefully across the globe. Yeah, and, and something that goes with that, uh, you talk about uh, the power of writing editorials. Um, you said something very powerful at the meeting the other night. Um, you said that the population of Muslims in America right now is roughly equivalent to that of Jews in Europe before World War II, and that what you write might even save someone's life. Exactly. We know that the whole system of dehumanization uh, ultimately leads to violence. It promotes, condones, and, and encourages violence uh, when you see people in that kind of dehumanized way. And we saw that happen, of course, in, in Germany. Uh, uh, and, and we're seeing some of the same kind of imagery, the same kind of vitriolic rhetoric, the same kind of conspiracy theories being promoted very strongly and even at the highest levels of government uh, here in our country. So the, the similar are actually one of the reasons that a lot of people have spoken out. They've seen the images, they hear the rhetoric, and they see the escalation and violence. And that's why I tell people that the action we take today, we can literally not only change the course of our, our history in our country, but potentially save lives, save the lives of, of you know, Muslim kids who are being attacked and bullied and, and even killed, unfortunately, as well as people from various different backgrounds that are facing discrimination, bigotry, hate, and, and even violence. We can be, we can essentially be an obstacle in that dehumanization machinery that is moving forward very strongly in our country. Yeah. I mean, we we really are living history right now and how we act or, or how we don't act absolutely matters. Um, you know, and in terms of humanization, I don't think there's anything more powerful than actually meeting people face to face. And there yeah. are opportunities to meet with your Muslim neighbors at MAPS. There are two iftar <laughs> celebrations coming up. There's one at MAPS and there's one at the Sammamish Mosque. There's also a community dinner at the Sammamish Mosque that is co-sponsored by Platopians for Peace. That is on Friday, March 22nd. But ultimately, this all ties into the humanizing connection that we're talking about here, uh, telling personalizing stories, writing editorials, and especially making personal interactions. Because so much hatred stems from not having a personal connection with somebody from a different background, right? I mean, it is much easier to hate an abstraction than a person. Exactly, exactly. And that is one of the most powerful ways to change people's hearts and minds is through that personal connection. Uh, and we will have plenty of opportunities, including on April 6th at MAPS, we're going to have a mosque visit uh, and a panel of American Muslim women sharing their stories. So we hope folks join us for that. There will be a mosque tour, a prayer observance, and even a free lunch. So the whole event is free. Mm. We welcome people all the time. And during the month of Ramadan, which starts probably on May 5th or 6th, uh, there's going to be plenty of opportunities across various mosques uh, all around the the country uh, for these kinds of interfaith iftars or breaking of the fast. And I will just say that, you know, you you hit on it and it's 
absolutely critical that we build these kinds of personal relationships so that we can have those kinds of stories to tell, whether in media or our social media or otherwise. And I will just give one quick example of the impact of these kinds of personal stories or personal interactions. There was a, a uh, ex-military person named Ted Hakey Jr. And he actually lived near next door to a mosque. He never went in there. He had very anti-Muslim views and he even promoted violence against Muslims on his social media. And one day he decided to take his own advice and he actually took his rifle and shot into the mosque, mm. uh, the next door mosque. Fortunately, nobody got injured. And fortunately, the mosque following Islamic teachings forgave uh, Ted Hakey Jr. And he visited with them at the mosque and he told them something that is so profound that I often tell the story to people. He said that, to them that he had never been to their mosque before and he said, if I had spent five minutes with you, I would not have done what I had done. That is all it would have taken is those five minutes and he would not have engaged in this horrific hate crime uh, against a community. Wow. Because the reality is that when you have a human face connected to someone, it is far, you're far less likely to be manipulated with false information and with the fear mongering that is happening. And you actually then have somebody that you can check with and, and understand the faith and the teachings and the beliefs rather than to believe the, the misinformation by the anti-Muslim bigots in our country. So that's uh, the important importance of those personal connections. And a lot of people may not have those personal co connections, which is why we highly encourage those who do to bring their family members, bring their coworkers, bring their colleagues, bring especially the people who hold anti-Muslim views, bring them with you to the mosque, to these various opportunities that exist all around us. And if people ever have trouble finding opportunities, they can reach out to uh, you know the, the Muslim Association of Puget Sound, MAPS Amen, and, and many other places that we can provide uh, contact information for them to find out what opportunities may exist. Well, that is such a, a powerful story that you tell. And, uh, you know, I'll just say from personal experience that MAPS is just so welcoming. I, I really highly encourage people to go visit in person. And just, Anil, before I let you go, I have to tell you how extraordinary Monday evening's event was. Uh, I, I almost don't have words. It was moving. It was profound. It, it allowed people to share grief and and most of all, I think it showed how this community just pulls together so tightly in a time of crisis to love and support one another. And I just want to thank you and all the organizers for making it possible. Well, thank you so much, Seth, and both for those words, the support, uh, and being there yourself, and all the new, you know, the 2,000 people who showed up. We even had to turn people away at the door because of the fire hazard. Mm. That was such a strong and powerful showing of solidarity and support. It uplifted me. I hope it's true for the other people who were there. The power that was felt there was just, so, and just from the presence, was just so moving. And especially the one moment that stands out to me when the Muslim community finished their evening prayer prayer and uh, spontaneously uh, the non-Muslims in the audience just stood up and held their we stand with our Muslim neighbor signs. That was such a moment that just like it, it had me in tears. Uh, it was just so powerful um, and it shows the beauty, the human beauty, uh, the, the beauty that we have here in our community. We're very blessed and fortunate to have that and I really want to personally and on behalf of the community and all the organizers of that event thank everybody for that support, especially 
during these times of trauma and tragedy. Uh, and I will add that we have, you know, less than three days to organize that event. So to have that kind of showing was just, I mean, I, I, I attribute it to God personally, because there's no way we could have done that. And the kind of magic that was in the room with everybody coming together from different faith backgrounds uh, without some kind of how higher power, uh, even if you believe in sort of just the power of humanity and the goodness of humanity that we saw on strong display Monday evening. Yeah, extraordinarily well put. Anila Absali is the executive director of Amen at Maps. Anila, thank you so much for all you do. Thank you for having me and everything you do as well. For the second consecutive year, the online news site CrossCut is hosting the CrossCut Festival. On May 3rd and 4th, attendees can sit in on over 40 panels, featuring some 75 panelists, including Valerie Jarrett, Pramila Jayapal, and Macklemore, discussing all things timely, from the climate and immigration to journalism, socialism, and much, much more. Jake Newman is the director of the festival, and he joins us now to tell us more about it. Hi, Jake. Hi, how are you? Great to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're with us. Um, So, you know, I want to talk about the lineup in depth in just a moment. But first, I would love for you to just kind of articulate the purpose of the festival. Who is the festival for and and what's its overarching mission? Gosh, you know, I think uh, overall, we just really want to be a facilitator for conversation um, about the issues that feel most pressing, um, you know, from our point of view, but also like in the community. we're, you know, we're journalists. We want to elevate the sort of priority of journalism for the community. Um, and so, so, you know, in, in having these conversations, we want to bring in the media and the people that are really telling the stories on the day to day locally, because, you know, ultimately we're embedded here, but also nationally. Um, so, you know, if the festival is successful, what we want to do is, is bring in voices that, you know, you're reading on the national, uh, newspapers and on websites and seeing on television, have them come to our community and weigh in on issues that we think kind of touch, uh, touch us on the ground here, but that also has impact nationally and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, the tagline is uh, big issues, bold ideas, uh, and it really is a facilitator for great conversation. I went to the event last year, and it's just awesome. And, you know, you talk about bringing in journalists from all over the country and really kind of putting the focus on journalism. I think that's so uh, important right now, and we'll get into why in a little bit when we talk about, you know, what CrossCut is, what its mission is in just a little bit. But just talking about the festival generally, I want to ask how these panels are put together. So there are a couple of solo keynote speakers who will be there, but most of the panels consist of maybe three or four people in conversation around a specific topic. And I'm curious how the panels are conceived. Do you have a topic in mind first and then select guests? Do you bring in the guests and then kind of put them together in interesting ways? Does it does it vary? Uh, it really varies. It's, it's like putting a puzzle together. So we're uh, the first half of the year really just tracking on stories, making lists and moving things up and down on the list in terms of our priorities. And then, um, you know, as the festival date and our deadlines start to come into focus, we uh, select one speaker's journalist that we feel are like the most exciting um, from that li- those lists that we're compiling. Um, and then we, we do a little bit of moving pieces around, figuring out who would pair interesting uh, topics and conversations together in what ways. So it's it's sort of an art and a science. Um, right. 
ultimately it's sort of driven by like who are the compelling journalists and speakers that uh, we want to spotlight that are interested in coming and then matching them with the stories that we feel like really these are at the top of the, the cultural conversation and zeitgeist, you know, um, and, and, and marrying those two things together in kind of creative ways. I think what you see in our programming, um, one overarching mission is trying to have a combination of somebody from a national perspective paired with somebody from a local perspective and sort of experts uh, in between or, or, you know, overlapping them so that we can really uh, build a bridge between, you know, what our local experiences is, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, what our local experiences are here with the stories that are sort of having national impact and, and a part of the national conversation because we're closer than we realize often with these things. Mm -hmm. So um, we have a conversation between Emma Brown um, uh, at the Washington Post who broke the like Brett Kavanaugh um, right. assault yeah. story. Uh, and then, uh, you know, she's paired with Sydney Brownstone from NPR who broke a number of stories locally in that same vein and putting those two on stage and having a conversation happen between the two of them, two of them not just about, you know, the, the issues and, and the importance around the Me Too movement, but also what's it like to be a journalist and to be at the center of those stories, you know, um, that is going to be so compelling. Um, so, so things like that you'll see across the board with all of our programming. Yeah, I mean, there, as you say, there really is this pairing of, of national and local, and it does create a unique and needed perspective. Um, and I think, you know, we are an awful lot closer than we think here in the digital age. And speaking of that obliquely, I know that CrossCut had a call for entries where readers could suggest uh, guests and panels. How much of the programming gets derived from that reader input? I think we're at the early stages of that really having a profound impact. Um, I definitely got a healthy uh, set of submissions from that, but that's, that is new to sort of the process from, mm. from the first year to this year. Um, so there were a couple sessions that definitely came out of those uh, inbound inquiries, one around the wildfires um, and the sort of uh, Washington's new relationship to yeah. smoke in our air every summer. Um, so we've got a really great conversation from one of the submissions on that front. Um, and then a couple others, I, I would say this year I was more sort of inspired by some of the submissions and they reiterated some of the themes that we had been talking internally about. It's like, okay, yeah, the, you know, the public is telling us this is of interest to them too. So they function, you know, that, that call for inquiries is really important because it's a feedback loop. You know, that's we right. want to yeah. be programming content that's important to people locally and then, you know, feeling like we're being responsive to those, to those ideas. So um, my expectation is that, you know, as we continue to sort of put that message out that we want these ideas, we want people to be, feel like they can contribute to the process, that that will grow even more. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the panels, the panelists, the headliners. Um, Valerie Jarrett is one of the marquee names. Uh, she was, of course, a senior advisor to President Obama, and she's going to be giving a keynote. Um, give us an idea of what she will be discussing. Yeah, I mean, Valerie, I'm really excited about. I'm, I'm really interested to hear particularly her conversation in uh, with Jamel Bowie. Um, I think, you know, Jamel... And he's a columnist for the New York Times. Yeah. yeah, a columnist for the New York Times and was, uh, you know, one of the um, sort of prominent people covering the Black Lives Matter um, moment in Ferguson. And I, I just think um, 
Jamel will bring something out of this conversation that will be so so unique. Um, you know, Valerie, obviously her her life story is really compelling. And then, you know, obviously we're I think we're all sort of more familiar with her relationship to um Barack Obama and the administration and his rise. So, you know, I think getting an opportunity to really sit down and listen to her in conversation with somebody like Jamel who has an appreciation for both history, you know, as something we remember, but something that is also lived, you know, right. um, and he, he's so great at tying what, you know, what is current, what's in the moment, uh, it, on our minds with the historical context. Uh, so Valerie, obviously is somebody who's coming out of an experience that is living history, you know, Obama's, sure. uh, election and presidency is something that, you know, changed how we see what's possible. Uh, in the world. And so, you know, to have some, have a chance for him, for Jamel to, to talk to Valerie on stage and be there in the audience or hearing him tie those two things together is going to be so compelling. And she, I mean, she is such a uh, dynamic personality too. I, I just think it's going to be fireworks. I'm, I'm excited for that one. Yeah, I am too. Uh, she's extraordinary. And of course she has a new book, uh, Finding My Voice, that I figure she'll be uh, mm-hmm. talking about. And I also should point out that she will be signing copies uh, during the festival as well. So um, also one of your marquee panels is going to feature Macklemore and Seattle Seahawk Doug Baldwin Jr. And this is going to be moderated by uh, somebody who was a guest on this show, uh, Pod Save the People's Doray McKesson. How is that panel conceived and give us just a preview of what they're going to be discussing yeah so that panel is going to be a ton of fun um i you'll you'll notice a theme with me where i keep going back to the moderators because i feel like Mm. uh, they sort of it's it's consistent with this idea of like where the journalists really can help shape the story um so i always start um in some ways with who's the who's asking the questions on stage and deray i mean you know deray is is interested in how change happens, right? Um, how change, uh, how, how our, our desires become actionable. Um, so, you know, if you think about like Dore, he always wears that vest and wears that vest to remind us of, um, you know, real events that happen on the ground in Ferguson, right? And I, so I'm excited for him to bring that kind of tactical, actionable perspective to a conversation with two people who um, have, opted to use their platform as sort of celebrities as public figures to try to drive social justice issues. Um, I think it will be, and, and you know, Dore is such an interesting personality that's sure. obviously going to be a really dynamic conversation, but I think he'll do a great job of sort of holding their feet to the fire in as much as it's sort of like, Hey, you know, how do we get from, you know, uh, being not just an ally and someone who says we want change, but to be sort of affecting change on the ground. You know, um, these guys have made important uh, and valuable choices to say, look, I'm going to, you know, not just sort of cash check as, as a celebrity, but I'm going to use uh, my platform as a way to sort of drive change. And I think like hearing the Ray have this conversation about, you know, what they're doing, what they've done. And I, you know, I think also just sort of inspiring them to see him uh, challenge them, I think will be inspiring, inspiring to, to, to Macklemore and to Doug Baldwin and, and uh, also to everybody in the audience. You know, he's, he's just such a force. 
Yeah, yeah, completely agreed. And in addition, in addition to talking about the ways that they have used their celebrity, Macklemore and Doug Baldwin, um, I, I assume that they'll also, Dre will probably push them to talk about why uh, they've they've made that yeah. choice and why they're using their celebrity uh, in that particular way. Um, and, you know, speaking of activism, um, I, one of the panels I know is going to be absolutely of interest to listeners to this show is called Hashtag Activism That Works. So give us a preview of what that panel is going to be about. Yeah, that panel is going to be really compelling. Um, so we, we're uh, bringing together, I think, um, three women who are really trying to uh, communicate challenging messages um, to move agendas forward that, you know, agree or disagree are, are hard for people to sort of face, right? So um, abortion, um, uh, uh, missing and murdered indigenous women, um, and then... Um, you know, sort of uh, another fo- another speaker who's going to be really focused on sort of women's rights and advocacy. So we want to talk to them about what are the modern tools that we can use to sort of drive conversation uh, with an emphasis on social media. I think, you know, Me Too is probably the most sort of prominent, uh, you know, hashtag that we think of that really sort of change the way that we think about an issue. But um, these women are, are doing that in a lot of different ways on social media. So we're excited to sort of talk to them about, you know, what's working, what's not working, uh, why is social media impactful, or, you know, how has it hurt a cause in, right. in some ways? I think that's going to be a really compelling issue to, to hear them sort of unpack yeah, and you do take a very broad look at a lot of these issues. And, you know, many of the prominent figures who are appearing in the festival are people that, you know, are generally known on the left side of the political spectrum. But you do have some bipartisan representation there. And in particular, one I wanted to ask you about, uh, bridging the partisan divide through environmental policy. This is going to be with Washington Commissioner of Public Lands, Hillary Franz, uh, representing the left. And then Bob Inglis, he is a Republican who served uh, as a congressman from South Carolina on the right. Climate change, obviously, one of the most, if not the most important issues facing us. This is a panel discussion, but it's about policy. I mean, policy is in the title. And so, so I'm wondering, is the hope at least in part that we might come away with solutions, something that might be workable politically from something like this? Yeah, I mean, that would be fantastic. I think um, my overarching goal here is to build bridges, right? I think this is the most important issue, in my humble opinion, that we're facing right now. Um, And there is no way we're going to do it if we're not working together across uh, party lines. So, you know, I want to, at first, at least just shine a spotlight on people who are really trying to do that dirty work day to day. Um, so I think, you know, these, these two speakers are really on the ground trying to make change happen and trying to find ways to work together. Mm-hmm. Um, do I, you know, do I think, you know, they, they work on opposite sides of the country. So I'm not sure that there's like an actionable policy, you know, that's going to come out of this conversation. But I think we can set the stage here for uh, for those collaborations to happen. Right. Um, they are both. Uh, non-traditional thinkers about the ways that we can can work together on issues around the environment. Uh, so, I, you know, I want to celebrate that. I want to spotlight that. I want um, to, you know, with all of our conversations to create sort of an atmosphere where there's civic and civil debate. Um, so, you know, my hope is here, look, we're going to, we're going to spotlight two people that are doing this work. We're going to make this 
clear that it is possible um, and hopefully that affects change that 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 has impact on the way that we approach this issue because it, it is it is urgent I'm, I'm, I'm impressed by the work you're doing yeah and like you say I mean you really are setting the stage here and that is one of the f- most important uh, you know first steps in addressing something like that is having two people who are willing to come to the table with a good faith effort right yeah exactly um, and I, you know so again I, I feel like you know, Hillary Franz and Bob Inglis are, are people that are sort of putting their uh, money where their mouth is. And, you know, I want to I want to do what I can to spotlight those folks and give them an opportunity to sort of communicate the ways that they're doing that, because there's reverberation in doing it, in, in giving them that opportunity. And yeah. I should say, you know, there are folks locally, um, in addition to Hillary, that are doing that work, too. So, you know, it, it's it's an opportunity for those people to feel like they they can be a part of this conversation, a part of this festival. Well, that sort of begs my next question, which is, you know, you, you're talking about the panelists and what they're going to bring to the, the discussion and to the, the festival. But I guess as a larger question, what are you hoping attendees come away with from this festival? Yeah, I mean, I hope they feel inspired uh, and, uh, you know, to be a part of the dialogue that's going on uh, locally and nationally. I hope they feel more connected to leadership. Uh, to I hope they feel uh, the, that they have a deeper sense of the value that journalists bring to uh, how we understand the issues and the stories around us. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we want this to be a celebration of uh people's engagement on the issues and people we also want people to sort of appreciate the value that these journalists bring to our lives you know that 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 for us is sort of the mission right we feel like journalism is so important to uh, a healthy democracy and to um, all of us feeling like we're a part of something bigger so you know I hope that this is this is there's some tactical information that people take away but I also think it's sort of a celebration of uh, a community of people that are willing to to be engaged and to be a part of the debate and to sort of drive change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you talk about spotlighting what journalists bring to our lives. And I mean, you're, you're certainly preaching to the choir with me. Um, and, and in fact, you have a panel called Is the News Broken? And this is moderated by Crosscuts executive editor Victor Hernandez. Um as we know, local journalism has absolutely struggled in the digital age, and I know that Crosscut works very hard to address this gap by providing quality local coverage here in Washington. Um, so, For people who may not be familiar with it, Crosscut.com is a nonprofit online news site. Tell us briefly about what its mission is and what it aims to cover. Yeah, I mean, we are just driven by the idea that local journalism is critical to a healthy uh place to live. So if there are not people on the ground who can report on and hold uh, hold our community accountable for the decisions that we make, then things happen without anybody knowing about it. Uh, so, you know, every day I myself am not a journalist, but I sit and watch how hard these people work to uncover stories, to hold people accountable, to um, tell tell our story uh, to reinforce the, you know, the, the good things that are happening around here and also to sort of shine a spotlight on stuff that needs to get uh, more attention. So, you know, we're, we feel like we're telling stories that matter. We're telling stories that impact us directly. Um, and without 
that as a part of the sort of uh, experience here, you you have you know you have elected officials who can sort of do whatever they want. If, if a story right. doesn't get covered by the press, you know who, who who holds anybody accountable, right? It's so fundamental to our democracy. Yeah, like you said, unfortunately, local journalism is facing a lot of challenges across the, the country and around the world. Um, so we you know we're, we're driven by that mission to sort of find a way to make this work. Um, that panel is, you know, I think going to be, give a real brutal assessment of where things stand. Uh, we'll use local media as a model for that for that conversation, but you see that happening all across the country. Yeah, I mean, I think CrossCut's model is, is a good one. As I say, you're nonprofit. You recently partnered with public TV station KCTS in 2015. Uh, you're a solid journalistic presence here in Washington, uh, particularly uh, with, as you say, local government, sunshine being the best disinfectant and all that. And, you know, of course, part of CrossCut's mission is to engage the community. And that's where events like the CrossCut Festival come in, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we want to uh, have an opportunity to be a part of the community and for the community to be a part of what we do. So these events are really critical. We do CrossCut Festival and then we do a series called News and Brews throughout the year that, uh, you know, it's sort of furthering this sort of public dialogue. Right. We yeah. want we want to meet people. We want people to come out and feel like they're a part of this process. Well, it's great. So uh, tell us briefly where people can learn more, where they can get tickets, all that. Yeah, they can go to crosscut.com slash festival. Tickets are on sale now. Um, there are senior and student discounts. There's VIP passes if you want all the accoutrements. Um, I encourage everyone to come out and check it out. I think it's going to be a really great time. And also, I should mention, if you are short on cash, you can volunteer, right? Yeah, we're definitely looking for volunteers. And that all is available on the website as well, crosscut.com slash festival. Well, the Crosscut Festival is happening May 3rd and 4th at Seattle University, and Jake Newman is the festival director. Jake Newman, thanks so much, man. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And we will finish up, as we always do, with our friend Stephen Wilhelm. He is research team leader for Indivisible Washington's 8th District. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Stefan. How's it going? It's good. Okay, so, you know, this week I want to talk a little bit about the state legislature. So uh, just as an overview, when we spoke with the head of the Washington State Indivisible Coalition, or WASIC, uh, Carolyn Barcliffe talked about uh, Indivisible's Lobby Day in Olympia, and she outlined the specific areas where we would be pushing our legislators, and those were the environment, health care, clean government and voting rights, and then there was also gun safety, immigration, and homelessness. So there is just a little less than a month left in this year's legislative session, and the good news is that the vast majority of our priority bills have passed in either the House or the Senate, but that means that we will need to give a push to some of these bills uh, to get them out of their committees in the opposite chamber, or they will expire. So let's just run down some of these, and we'll start on the House side, which is considering some Senate bills. Um, let's start first with the House Rural Development, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee. What bills are they considering? Um, they've got a couple of bills that um, people may feel strongly about. Um, the, the two things that are in front of that uh, committee 
are um, you know prohibiting the single use of plastic straws. You know, there's a lot of plastic in the ocean, and this yeah. is an effort to try and um, reduce some of that uh, plastic waste in the ocean. And, and then speaking of uh, um, you know trying to clean things up or improve things in the environment for our for for in the ocean, there, there's also uh, a bill uh, SB five five seven seven that has a number of measures or uh, a, a measure to protect southern resident orcas from uh, from vessels. That would be the bill to um, increase the distance uh, between between vessels and uh, and the the orcas to um, you know reduce the reduce the stress on them. Yeah, you know it's hard to uh, imagine that something regarding the orcas wouldn't advance with just a little push there. And I also mentioned that uh, SB fifty seventy seven is the single use plastic straws, and that was uh, Senator Petty Cooter's bill. Um, you know we're going to go down this list fairly quickly, but as always, there will be a link uh, to ledge.wa.gov to find out if your legislator sits on a particular committee. All right, so next is the House Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee. What are the pertinent bills before them? Uh, three bills in front of that committee. Um, two of them that are that are near and dear to my heart. I've got a little bit of a passion for um, uh, gun safety, and uh, the two two of those bills are um, temporarily restricting firearms um, after an involuntary seventy two hour hold, or so that. Um, protects um, people that are involved in uh, domestic violence right. issues or, or other reasons um, for, from um, having access to weapons and also uh, another bill to clarify uh, background uh, check requirements for concealed pistol licenses. It's certainly if people are going to be allowed to carry a concealed weapon, we want to make sure that, they, that the, the background check requirements are, are met there. Absolutely. Uh, a really different bill uh, that, that's also in front of that same committee, um, but I think it's probably near and dear to a number of your listeners' hearts, yep. is the, uh, the Keep Washington uh, Working Bill, which is, establishes a statewide policy for the Washington's economy and, and especially immigrants' role in the workplace. So really important to protect our immigrants there with that, that bill. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Senator Lisa Wellman came on and talked about that. She is the lead sponsor on that bill. And yeah, of course, two very important gun safety bills, as you mentioned. Uh, next are some of our bills before the House State Government Committee. So tell us uh, briefly about those. Yeah, the um, two that I'm a little bit more familiar with are um, providing prepaid postage for all uh, election ballots. That's an issue that probably people have been hearing a lot about. And, and I think yeah, actually, know, Washington- I think what's surprising is that I think a lot of people thought that that was going to be permanent, but uh, not yet. Exactly so. So this this should uh, take care of that. And an, another uh, uh, bill, uh, really important for clean government, Washington. We've heard in in uh, some of our uh, meetings that um, you know Washington does have a pretty good. Uh, process for ensuring accurate redistricting, but there is a bill in front of this uh, state committee to to um, fine tune some of those requirements and ensure that um, we don't get involved in gerry- gerrymandering yep. in uh, in Washington State. Yes, indeed, redistricting just in time for the 2020 census, or well, uh, well in exactly. advance. Um, so it's good to put that in place ahead of time. Okay, so let's shift over to the Senate, and there are. Four House bills before the Senate Environment and Technology Committee. Can you just run down those very quickly? Sure, real quick. Um, there is again on the on the House side is a is a bill to reduce threats to the southern resident orcas by improving uh, safety of oil transportation. So again, dealing with um, 
um, uh, you know, vessel traffic yeah. primarily, but but some other issues with pipelines as well, um, and also concerning um, unmanned aerial systems near certain protected marine species, including orcas. So primarily, you know, trying avoiding harassing them with with drones and and things like that, and and finally implementing the recommendations of the Southern uh, Resident Killer Whale Task Force. So several bills there that are really trying to protect the orcas. That's that's uh, really important uh, important work, and 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 one bill that. Stefan, maybe you want to say a little bit more about, but a really important bill, HB 1110, um, which is the low carbon fuel standard or, or reducing greenhouse gas emissions associated with transportation. A really important bill. It's having a tough time. Uh, it looks to me like anyway, having a little bit of a tough time getting through, but uh, really important and, and maybe really important for our listeners to um, push hard on their uh, senators to move that House bill through the through the house, through the Senate. Yeah, um, 1110 really may need the biggest push because it's my understanding that even some Democrats are being swayed by fossil fuel interests. And I will actually yep. provide a link to listeners to a really great piece in Crosscut. Um, another shout out to Crosscut this week. Uh, and it talks about how California and Oregon have implemented similar measures and have not had the sort of, you know, uh, outsized boost uh, in, in prices at the pump that I think a lot of lobbyists are trying to scare our legislators with. So there's some background for you guys on that. Okay, so um, what is being considered next in the Senate Agriculture, Water and Natural Resources Committee? Yeah, just one bill there, but I, I think it's a, probably, I would call it an important bill. So the the title is to reduce food waste, to fight hunger and reduce environmental impacts. Yeah. Uh, probably your listeners know that a lot of uh, restaurants, uh, grocery stores, and a lot of places have to um, throw out food that, that's still um, consumable. And, and so that's a, that's a waste and it's an impact on the environment. So this bill would facilitate um, being able to reuse some of that food waste so that uh, people won't go hungry and also reduce the impact on the environment. Yeah, and that's sort of a win-win there. Okay. And so then finally, for sure. the Senate State Government Committee is marking up two bills. What are those? Yeah, two really important open government bills there. Uh, one is a bill to um, concerning the disclosure of contributions from uh, political committees to other political committees. So want to be able to see where some of that dark money is going. So this, this bill would, would uh, provide a little disinfecting sun, sunlight to mm. all those uh, um, political contributions. Sure. And then uh, another bill... Um, probably just almost as important or more important considering uh, considering security breaches of election systems or election data by foreign entities. So if the federal government is not going to do anything um, to keep our election system safe from uh, hacking, especially by foreign uh, countries, we certainly want uh, Washington state to do everything they can to keep our election system uh, safe from, from hacking. Why was that pertinent, Stephen? I have no idea. What's, yeah. what's the context there? I, yeah, why, why would that yeah, be? Yeah, uh, it would needed? be really nice if somebody would take a look at that problem because, <laughs> as as we've seen in the news, you know, it's not like uh, uh, people have given up, and it's not right. like it's just the Russians, uh, the Chinese, and another uh, number Saudi of Arabia, other countries have been others, reported. Yeah. Saudi Arabia, thank you, have been um, you know reported to be hacking, probing. In, into various uh, election data systems, and, and we've just got to do. Be, we've just got to be better uh, about protecting our, our uh, system and making sure that everybody's vote counts. That's exactly right. Well, so you know, I will just say in closing that uh, this may sound like a lot, but just as a matter of course, these calls to action are for things that you're specifically passionate about. You certainly do not need to do them all. That's part of why the State Indivisible Coalition broke them down into categories, so you can push what is important to. 
to you. And as I said, the link to see if your legislator sits on any of these committees is ledge.wat.gov. And I will have a link to all of the bills and committees at indivisiblepodcast.org. Stephen, as always, thank you so much for the great information. Yeah, it's been fun. Talk to you soon, Stephen. And that's going to do it for this week's show. Hey, you guys, if you could just do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to rate the show, maybe write a couple things about it, that would be so awesome. It really does help. And as always, for links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org and you can subscribe if you have not already done so. Also, please keep the emails coming. I love them. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Anila Avzali and Jake Newman. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.